Let's go ahead and pray again this morning. Father, we thank you for your word and the privilege that we have to be here this morning to gather freely and comfortably and with relative ease to worship you together and to study your word together. And we thank you that on this of all days we can gather together to celebrate who Jesus is and what he's done for us. And I pray that this morning as we look at the the realities of the resurrection, of the present hope that we have in Christ because of what he's done, that you would just send your spirit to work in us, to help us see in your word areas of our life which need to be submitted to you. God, that we wouldn't just celebrate what Christ has done today, but that we would be challenged and convicted by it as well. And we pray that as we look at the truth of Christ's resurrection together, that we would see in it not just an event that we should celebrate once a year, but that we should see in it an an invitation to live a different kind of life the rest of the year. Jesus, we need you. We need you to work in us and to work through us and to speak to us through your word. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So this morning, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians 15, if you want to go ahead and turn there. If you don't have a Bible, there's some under the chairs in this morning's passage, and those Bibles is on page 961. And, you know, I don't know what your experience has been with uh, Easter Sunday in churches, but uh, let me tell you a little bit about mine. Typically, you know, I would do the whole, the week before Easter, parents take you to the store, get you maybe a new shirt, maybe a nice tie, maybe even a jacket, if you want to look especially nice on Easter Sunday. Did any of you get clothes especially for Easter yeah, the special Easter clothes. I don't really understand where that came from, but uh, evidently it's still a thing because as you can see, Daniel Miller's wearing a tie this Sunday. But Easter was always about this, this huge celebration, which it should be, right? Because Jesus is risen, we should gather together, we should celebrate that, we should be excited about that, we should be joyful about that. But often, to me, what it was more like was those celebrations that, you know, cities will have after their team wins, like after the Cardinals won the World Series or whoever wins the Super Bowl. They throw a parade in the city and all the fans gather and they say, yay, we did it. We won. It's not these guys won. It's not the professional athletes competed and they did what they're paid to do and they won. It's, it's we won. This is our victory together. And so what normally happened for me on Easter is I would go to church in my nice new outfit and I would hear the pastor preach. I would sing the songs and I would leave saying, we did it. Jesus is risen. I'm good. Look how nice I look. And then I would go on about my life without really changing at all. 
Easter didn't impact me. It didn't affect me. It didn't change the way I lived week in and week out. But that's changing for me. Easter haunts me as a Christian. And I know that sounds really odd to say, but more than anything else, more than any other aspect of who Jesus is and what he's done for us, the resurrection lays the most claim on us. The fact that Jesus was born as a man means that he can identify with us. It means that he was tempted in every way that we are, yet was without sin, so that he can sympathize with us. He was made like us. We can follow in his footsteps. That's the incarnation. The fact that he died for us means that he paid the penalty for our sins. He put them away. He broke the power of sin, death, and Satan over us. But it's in the resurrection where we find out that all of those things are absolutely true. The resurrection is when God essentially just stamps his seal of approval on who Jesus is and what he's done for us. And Paul tells us that it's through the resurrection that that we become enabled, we become equipped, we become empowered by the Spirit to live a new kind of life. All of those other things are good. Don't hear me as saying that the incarnation doesn't matter or the crucifixion doesn't matter. They do matter. But it's the resurrection which puts these huge demands on the way we live. And because of that, I think that it, more than anything else, should affect us. It shouldn't be something that we gather together once a year and say, Woohoo, Jesus is raised. It should be something every day when we wake up that we think about and we live differently because of. And if it's not, then it doesn't matter what we do on Easter Sunday. It doesn't matter what we do on the rest of the Sundays. Because if the resurrection doesn't matter to us, Jesus doesn't matter to us. And so as we look at this passage together, I want us to see things in it that place demands on our lives. He has one. We have one in him. And because of that, we should live differently. So let's read verses 1 through 19 of 1 Corinthians 15. Paul says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, Then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, we preach, and so you believe. Now, if Christ 
is proclaimed, is raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If In Christ we have hope in this life only. We are of all people most to be pitied. We're going to focus most of our time on verse 19. The rest of the verses are going to help us understand it. Paul says, If if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. We need to understand what Paul's saying here. When he says that we, of all people, were most to be pitied, clearly Paul understands the resurrection to be of the utmost importance. If it's not true, our situation is worse than anyone else in the world. Pity. To pity someone, it means to to see their suffering to see the desperation in which they live and feel compassion and love towards them. To see someone in need and be broken about it. And Paul says that people should feel that for us more than anyone else if Jesus hasn't been raised. This past week, you may have seen in the news that this this ferry crashed, uh, or I guess ships don't crash, they sink, uh, in South Korea. As of this morning, about 50 people have died, and they're still finding bodies. They think the death count might rise to 300. Most of these were high school students that were on board. So right now, there are countless families, parents, brothers, sisters, who are waiting to hear word about whether or not their kids, whether or not their siblings are alive. The vice principal of the high school was on board and he survived. He made it off the ship and lived. He was found hung at a place where they were uh, moving the survivors to. He killed himself because he felt shame and guilt that he had survived when everybody else hadn't. Those people should be pitied. I absolutely feel for the kids that would have been on board and drowned to death. And the parents who are waiting to find out whether or not their kids are coming home. And this guy who is deluded by some misguided worldly understanding of shame and honor that would kill himself because he lived. These people deserve pity. But what Paul says, is that if the resurrection isn't true, our situation is worse. And that's that's hard for me to wrap my mind around. As a parent, I can't imagine losing losing a child, especially like this. And if that were to happen, I I would want pity. 
I would want people to have compassion on me in my situation. But Paul says, our situation is worse if the resurrection isn't true. How many of you, to shift gears here, how many of you have heard of Blaise Pascal? All right, quite a few. Blaise Pascal was a mathematician and an uh, inventor and a Christian philosopher. And he came up with this thing called Pascal's Wager, which I think we have on a slide. There we go. He didn't write it this way because I'm pretty sure he was French, but this is his thought boiled down to a very simple table. And what he said was that essentially betting that God exists is better than betting that he doesn't. The reason why is if you're an unbeliever, if you don't believe in God and God doesn't exist, then nothing happens. You're just the same. If you don't believe in God, God doesn't exist, nothing. But if you don't believe in God and God does exist, then the worst thing that you can expect is eternal punishment. That's bad. You don't want that. But on the other side, if you believe in God and God doesn't exist, the worst that happens to you is you live a moral life. Right? You don't do all the crazy things that non-Christians do, and so you don't have the negative or as many of the negative consequences of sin that they would have. But if God does exist, then you get eternal reward. That's good. And so his conclusion was it's better to believe in God than not because even if God doesn't exist, it still isn't necessarily a bad thing for you. Now, one time this made a whole lot of sense to me. But it doesn't make sense of what Paul says. Paul doesn't say... If God doesn't exist, if the word isn't true, if Jesus isn't who he said he was, if, if none of these things happen, Paul doesn't say, well, at least I live a moral life. At least I was a good guy. At least people liked me. At least I wrote all these letters to all these groups of people. Paul says, if this isn't true, I'm the worst of the worst. People should feel sorry for me. He doesn't say this. So I think that as we look at this verse, as we try to understand what Paul is saying, we need to get that this isn't some statement that we should just skip over in 1 Corinthians. We shouldn't just say, well, Paul says if Christ wasn't raised, then we should be pitied, but he, he has been raised. He says that in the next verse. So let's just focus on that. Let's not focus on the bad. See, I think that what Paul is doing here in this statement, this, this hypothetical situation that we would be in if Jesus wasn't raised, is he is holding up to us. By the Spirit, he's holding up to us both a, a mirror and a window. You see, the resurrection of Christ, what it means for us, the present effects of what he's done for us should both challenge us and convict us. That's the mirror and it should also encourage us and empower us and equip us and invite us into a new kind of life. That's this window. And we're going to see this as we look at this passage. You see, when we read verse 19, we often misunderstand it. Paul says, if in Christ 
We have hope in this life only. We are of all people most to be pitied. The problem that we have when we read this is we think it's talking about what happens later. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, so we just have hope in the present, if there's no future, then we are of all people most to be pitied. And so for us, contemporary Christians in America, it becomes, well, if modern movies aside, heaven isn't real, then we should be pitied. If there's nothing coming for me at the end of this life, then I deserve pity. That's what we read Paul is saying. Right? Am I the only one who does this? Typically understand it as meaning, I can live my certain life, my present life a certain way because I know that something better is coming at the end. It's okay for me not to have my best life now because I'll have my best life then. But the problem with that understanding of what Paul says is that it doesn't make sense of what Paul says. Look at verses 13 through 17 or 18, what comes before this. Paul gives us this list, this list of things that are not true if the resurrection isn't true. If there is no resurrection, then Christ has not been raised. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God. Later he says... If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. So, Jesus hasn't been raised. Preaching's in vain. Faith is in vain. We're lying about God. Your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. And those who are dead, well, they're just dead. Seven different things. But of those seven things, only one of them has to do with the future. It's the last one. He talks about the people that are dead, they're just dead. But really that's present too because it affects us emotionally. If we know that all of our loved ones are just gone, that would bother us. If we know that all of those who have come before and have given their lives for the gospel gave it for nothing, that would bother us. Paul isn't talking about what would happen to us if we had no future hope. He's talking to us about how our lives would be affected right now if the resurrection wasn't true. He's not saying we should be pitied if there's no reward then. He's saying we should be pitied now if it's not true. It's these present effects of the resurrection that matter for us. And this is where that mirror comes in. Because I know that when I look at my life and I compare it to the people around me that don't believe the gospel, that don't believe the resurrection, I don't really see a strong case in my life that I should be pitied much more than them. If the resurrection's not true, I still have my house, I still have my car. I still have my family. I still have my kids. Probably have to find a new job. But for the most part, my life stays the same. I don't suffer much. I don't want for much. 
have a fairly comfortable and secure life. And I'm assuming that that's true for most of you as well. But Paul says, because the resurrection is true, our lives should be pitiable if it's not. And specifically about what he says here. He says, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is in vain. And those who believe our preaching are in vain. We're lying about God. We're misrepresenting Him. Notice here that Paul is assuming that we're doing all of these things. We're to be pitied because we're people who are out there preaching the gospel. We're people who are out there who are telling other people about what Christ has done and they're believing our message. They're placing their faith in Him because of how we talk about Him. We're out there who people who are representing God, we're being His ambassadors in the world, we're being His ministers of reconciliation, and if the resurrection isn't true, then when we do that, we're misrepresenting Him. Paul's assuming that these things are true about us, and that's why we would be pitied if the resurrection wasn't. These words should challenge us. Paul is saying that this is what people that believe the resurrection do. He goes on to talk about more personal things. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Futile means that it's pointless. It's going nowhere. And we're still in our sins. Not just under the penalty for them, but also under the power of them. Here he's assuming that the Corinthians, these people who believe the resurrection, they are placing their faith in Christ. They are depending on Him for everything. Their faith is not futile because it's in Him and He's the risen King and faith in Him is always purposeful. It always accomplishes things. It always produces results and it's never futile. He's assuming that these people aren't still in their sins. They've been freed from the penalty that they were under because of God's wrath against them and their sin and they've also been freed from its power. So they're living different lives. They don't live lives which continually give in to the same sin day after day after day. They say no to it by the Spirit. They're dead to sin and alive to Christ and he's assuming that that's true because the resurrection is. These things should challenge us. They should define us. If the resurrection isn't true, we should be pitied. But again, it's not just a mirror. I don't don't want us to see in this passage just some list of things that's going to make us feel guilty. I don't want us to go out and say, well, you know, Paul says that I need to preach, I need to represent God, I need to say no to sin, and so I'm going to do all these things. Because really, that's just trading legalism for 
laziness. The motivation here isn't Paul pointing the finger at us. The motivation here is Paul pointing the finger at Christ. See, it's it's not just a mirror. It's not just something to challenge and convict us. It's also a window into seeing the kind of life that we can live in Christ because he is raised. Because he is risen, our faith or our, our preaching isn't in vain. We know the truth about God. We know the truth about who Jesus is and what he's done for us. And it's not in vain because Jesus empowers our preaching. When Paul talks about the gospel, he never talks about it as if it's something that he just convinces people of. He never talks about it as if it's something that he can just persuade people to believe. He always talks about how it comes in power by the Spirit. He knew, as we read earlier, it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Our preaching is not in vain because Jesus is raised. And because Jesus is raised, he has sent the Spirit to empower us and equip us to walk in a new life, which we have because of his resurrection. And the people that believe our message, their faith isn't in vain either because they're believing the message that's been passed on to us from Paul. Our faith isn't pointless, even though there are probably times where it feels like it is. I know, at least I'm assuming I'm not alone in this, That there are times when you pray, times when you desperately ask God to do something and nothing happens. And there's a temptation for us to feel that it is meaningless, it is pointless, it doesn't produce results. There's a temptation for us to not believe. But because Christ is risen, because he did conquer the grave, our faith isn't in vain. It's not pointless, even though it might feel like it. Faith in Christ, whether it's a lot of faith or a little faith, not that we can really even quantify it. The amount of faith we have doesn't matter. What matters is the object of our faith. And if our faith is in Christ and his resurrection, and what he's done for us, and who he is, it doesn't matter whether it's a lot or a little. If it's in him, it is not in vain. And we're not still in our sins. Because Christ is risen, that means the power of sin over us is broken. Last year on Easter... I'm sure all of you remember what we talked about exactly like I do, except I had to look it up. We talked about Romans 6. In Romans 6, Paul talks about how we are dead to sin. And he says, how are we who are, how how can we who are dead to sin continue to live in it? And he's assuming we can't. Because of Christ's resurrection, we're not in our sins. We're in Christ. And even though our flesh still holds on, even though the old man is still present in our lives, we're not still in our sins. We can say no to sin.
We can have victory over sin. We are freed from both the penalty of our sin because Christ bore it all on the cross and we're free from the enslaving power of it. It doesn't hold power over us. We hold power over us. When I sin, it's not because some outside force comes against me and takes me hostage. When I sin, it's because I decide sin is better than Jesus. It's because what I want becomes more important than what I need. Christ is risen, and because of that, we are not still in our sins. If that doesn't motivate us to say no to sin, then nothing's going to. Jesus has freed us from it. I mean, just imagine somebody being a prisoner somewhere. Somebody coming along, opening up the door and say, you're free. And the guy's saying, I just want to hang out in here for a little while. Gotten used to my cell, got all these notches on the wall. I don't want to leave. No one would do that. Being out of jail is always better than being in jail. But I say that with no experience. Just assuming that that's the case. We often talk about the resurrection as if it's just this, this exclamation point on the end of the gospel. Right? Jesus lived, he died, he was buried, he rose again. The end. But instead, how we should think about it is all the stuff that comes before the resurrection, it's what, it's what releases us from our old life. It's what takes it all away. And the resurrection is what gives us something different. Now, the lines aren't that clear in Scripture. Really, most theology isn't. But for me, that's a really helpful way to think about it, is that the resurrection is what enables us to live a different kind of life. Right? If you've ever seen someone baptized, Say they're the pastor guy, you know, gets in our case the pool with them, takes them under the water and says they're buried with Christ in baptism. And this comes from Romans. And then they're raised to walk in newness of life. And baptism represents the gospel. When we go down into the water, it's symbolic of our union with Christ in his death, which the New Testament says is true of us as believers. And when we come up out of the water, it's symbolic of the fact that we're raised with him. We're raised with him. We already are. It's not we will be. We are raised with him. This isn't some future thing that we're waiting to have happen to us. We're raised with him. We walk in a new life. We're free from our old life. These are things that have been done to us by the Spirit because of the gospel. And so, absolutely, Easter is something we should celebrate. It's something that we should celebrate every Sunday. We should worship Christ and be grateful to him for what he's done for us. Not just on the cross, but in his resurrection. 
Because it's, it's in his resurrection where we're invited into a life different from the life that we're living now. The reality is, is that if this isn't true, if the resurrection isn't true, then Paul is absolutely correct. We are, of all people, most to be pitied. But what if we flip that around? If the resurrection is true, then what would be the opposite of pitied? Any suggestions? Envied. That's a good one. Except it's a sin. Just kidding. <laughs> Because Christ is risen, we should be envied more than all people. People should look at us because Christ is living in us and say, I want that kind of life. Not so that they can say, oh, look at those good Christians. They're so wonderful. I want to be just like them. But so that what Jesus says will be true of us, that they would see our good works and glorify our Father who's in heaven. People should envy our lives because the power of the resurrection is evident in them. And so I don't, I don't want to be haunted by Easter anymore. I want Easter to be something that we celebrate for the right reasons. Because we're living the kind of lives that he calls us into in it. Let's pray. Jesus, we know that we can only scratch the surface of the grace that you have shown us. That we can only understand a very small amount of the present realities of the resurrection in our lives. But we pray that you would send your Spirit to challenge us and to draw us. That we would feel godly guilt that leads to repentance where we need to. But that we would also see a path before us that you have prepared for us to walk in a different kind of life. That because your resurrection is true, that we would live lives that cause others to desire you. That they would see our joy and our hope and our satisfaction in you and want that for themselves. That they would see lived out the forgiveness and the grace and the mercy that we've been shown in the cross. They would want that for themselves. And we pray that you would help us to follow you in such a way that others want to follow you. We pray that your resurrection wouldn't be some footnote on the gospel for us, but that it would be our daily bread. It would be what enables us to live our lives that we would see you 
as the risen king who's beckoning us to come after him. Christ, we thank you for all that you've done for us. We thank you for all that you're doing for us. That even as Paul says that we are being saved by the gospel that was preached to us. Pray that as we take the Lord's Supper together as a body, that we would remember and celebrate who you are and what you've done for us. It's in your name we pray. Amen.